if you were looking at the uh, news this last week, but you may have noticed that at the opening of the European Parliament on Tuesday, Tuesday that's just gone, uh, 29 Brexit Party MEPs stood and turned their back at the playing of the EU anthem, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Now, I am not going to comment upon the politics of this gesture, but rather actually point out that this is a great illustration of how so many Christians see their relationship to living in the modern world. They don't like what's going on. They feel threatened by changes in society. They denounce the loosening of abortion laws and the promotion of same-sex marriage and transgender rights. And in this age of so-called diversity and inclusion, they feel themselves to be increasingly persecuted and excluded. So what's the response? Generally speaking, it will be to turn our backs and to make our protest and to retreat into our ghettos, comforting ourselves with the fact that, well, it's okay, one day God will judge these people in his good time. And looking back to that golden age, whenever that may have been, when we were in the majority and we were able to impose our values on others. Well, is this how it should be? Is this what the Bible encourages? Is this the message that Jesus modeled? You see, society has changed enormously in such a short space of time. And so many Christians are playing catch-up in an effort to respond appropriately to the new situation in which they find themselves. Some have grown more angry and bitter and confused. Whilst others have dispensed with the clear teaching of the Bible in an effort to accommodate themselves to the new normal. So what should it be? What should we do? How should we respond? Well, this is where the book of Jonah is invaluable. And over the next three Sunday evenings, we're going to be looking at this brilliantly written and carefully constructed account about someone who was struggling with issues very similar to our own. But as with all Bible books, we mustn't rip it out of context and just drop it into the beginning of the 21st century. We need to understand some background material to understand what was going on, how this book was written, and who Jonah really was. Well, let's start with Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai, to whom the word of the Lord came in verse 1. Hope you've still got that open, page 9 to 8. Now, now Jonah actually is mentioned once elsewhere in Scripture, in a very revealing passage. It's there in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 to 25. We'll have it on screen. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, 
and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So, by putting these things together, this gives us a date for Jonah, sometime between 7846 and 747 BC. And from what we have just read in 2 Kings, we can see that Jonah encouraged a wicked king, king known as Jeroboam II. He encouraged him to restore the boundaries of the northern kingdom of Israel to their original dimensions. Whereas two other prophets, Hosea and Amos, working at the same time, had criticized Jeroboam for his wicked behavior. Whereas Jonah seemed to encourage Jeroboam in his opposition to the Assyrians who'd continually been threatening the northern kingdom. In fact, Gath-Hefer, from where Jonah came, would likely have been on the front line in this conflict. And Jonah and his family may well have suffered from these incursions as the Assyrians made raids into the northern part uh, of Israel. And these Assyrians were amongst the cruelest and the most violent of people. Look, if you think you've got a problem with the secularists of today, just listen to what these Assyrians were like, and I'm quoting now. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skin displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. And it was to Nineveh, a capital city of these people that the patriotic, nationalistic Jonah was sent to preach a message about God's judgment. And the trouble was, if God was warning them of judgment, it was therefore possible that they might repent and that they might escape the judgment that Jonah longed that they would experience. So there's the story set up for us. Would God have mercy upon the very people that we think he should hate? And the structure of this book is beautifully simple. Uh, it's shaped by two parallel patterns. Um, there are a number of ways that this could be outlined, but uh, for our use, I'm going to be using Tim Keller's version here. We'll see it on screen. It's, there are two scenes. Scene one is, uh, sorry, the print maybe is... Just a bit small, but I hope you can see that. Scene one is Jonah, 
the pagans and the sea, that's chapters 1 and 2. Scene 2, which is chapters 3 and 4, is Jonah, the pagans and the city. And you will notice how there is a mirroring, how they parallel each other. So, for example, three main sections, Jonah and God's word, Jonah and God's world, Jonah and God's grace. And you will see how these are mirrored. So, chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord's word comes to Jonah. That's what happens. That's what's mirrored in the second section. 3, verse 1. Verse 2, the message to be conveyed. Same in chapter 3, verse 3, the response of Jonah. Same in uh, chapter 3. You can see how it is deliberately mirrored. These documents that you may think they were written such a long time ago by such simple people, I tell you there is a complexity and a beauty to it which is not matched in our contemporary literature. Uh, the same when it goes for the second section, Jonah and God's world. Uh, verse 4, the word of warning and the response of the pagans. Verse 5, verse 6, the response of the pagan leader. Verse 7 to the end of the chapter, a better response than Jonah's. And, and that is echoed in t exactly with the same verse divisions uh, in chapter 3. And then the, the third, the final section, Jonah and God's grace. That's uh, chapter 2, the final section of scene 1, how God taught grace to Jonah through the fish. And chapter 4, the final section of scene two, how God taught grace to Jonah through the plant. So you see, there is a beautiful symmetry. There is a very definite structure to this book we are looking at. This isn't just some old mumbo-jumbo that's been thrown together. Those who have looked at it far, far, far wiser than I am uh, speak rapturously. Uh, about the intricacies of, of how it is beautifully put together. So look, let's have, a, let's have a look at the first chapter, which begins with the Lord commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh. He was literally to go up to Nineveh. That's the word in the Hebrew here. He was literally to go up to Nineveh, but he actually goes down to Joppa to get a boat to Tarshish. The, the Hebrew contrasting Hebrew words are used. Now, I have to say we're immediately shocked at his disobedience. He is a prophet, God tells him to do something, and he doesn't do it. And we're even more shocked when we realize he's boarded a ship to go as far away as possible in the opposite direction. Now, we don't precisely know where Tarshish was. But best guesses are it was a major seaport at the southern tip of Spain. Basically, it was as far away as you could get in those days. It was the sort of byword that you would use to talk about the ends of the earth. And although the reason for this disobedience becomes more obvious as the book goes on, we've already had enough clues to see that Jonah doesn't want to go and speak to Nineveh because he is afraid that the Lord will have mercy on the people he despises. Those wretched pagans and idolaters. And the beautiful irony and satire of this book is that Jonah finds himself on a boat crewed by wretched pagans and idolaters. For when a terrible storm is hurled down upon the boat, we find the sailors calling out to their own gods to save them. And they then do all they can to stop the ship from breaking up and sinking. And it's at this time that the captain goes... Down, we've got this word again coming up, goes down below deck to find Jonah asleep. And he tells him to go up 
actually using the same language, the same Hebrew word that we found in verse 2, and call on his God for rescue. But the sailors are aware, actually, that they're dealing with conditions that are supernaturally unusual, that there's more to this storm than meets the eye, so they cast lots. And the lot points to Jonah as the culprit. Verse 8. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And now for the first time we hear Jonah speak as he answers their urgent questions. Verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. See, he doesn't tell them he's a prophet doesn't tell them he's someone who's supposed to declare the words of Almighty God. Maybe that would have been too embarrassing or incriminating. But he does begin by identifying himself by his nationality. I'm a Hebrew. And that seems to be the most important identifier for Jonah, his cultural background. And in describing the God he worships, it becomes clear to the pagan sailors that this God is not some territorial deity. That was certainly how then gods, the gods, were understood, these deities. They were sort of attached to particular areas. They were bound to national boundaries. But this God that Jonah worships claims to be the creator of all things, both the sea and the dry land which in turn just confirms to these sailors that Jonah is the cause of their predicament. No wonder they're terrified. This God commands the seas. This God has a personal interest in one disobedient individual. Little wonder they ask how they might appease such a God. How might they get the sea to calm down? What needs to be done to deal with Jonah's sin? Verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, Jonah replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. See, Jonah is fully aware of the gravity of his sin and disobedience. His sense of God's holiness and anger against sin is well ingrained. And although the sailors try to do all they can to save this stranger on their boat, the storm gets so bad that they have no other option. After praying to Yahweh, Jehovah, they use the technical term for the God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, they throw Jonah overboard. And lo and behold, the raging storm supernaturally becomes calm. And just to show that this was no prayer that was made in the heat of the moment and forgotten the next, the writer records how the men, verse 16, greatly feared the Lord, feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. In other words, they became followers of Yahweh. They were converted, to use our evangelical jargon. Now look, we're going to leave Jonah in the sea for another week and return to his condition next Sunday evening. But until then, there are some lessons that we need to apply to ourselves from this passage. Number one is this. Jonah was judged by a pagan for not caring for others. Jonah was judged by a pagan for not caring for others. 
You see, the ship's captain reprimanded him for sleeping whilst others were working hard to keep the ship intact. The sailors were in danger, but Jonah did nothing to help. And in the same way today, unbelievers will judge us according to whether we are practically concerned about the good of the community. You see, we're not just members of the faith community that meets here at Charlotte Chapel. Many of us are. But we're also members of this society at large. We could well be uh, residents of this city. And if there are things that we could be doing to help fight injustice and inequality and poverty and destitution and crime, then we should. Of course, this is the very same thing Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not some sort of trendy left-wing agenda that you find me bringing to you. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's what Paul taught. Galatians 6. Verses 9 into 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Let us do good to all people. It's what Peter taught. 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. My friends, this is a gospel imperative. We're to do good to all, including those who may not share our values and assumptions. In my office in this building, up there. I have a quote that I typed out that I've printed. It's on the wall in front of my desk. I see it daily. This is what the quote says. Tom doesn't need our worn out cliches. Tom needs the truth of the gospel message packaged in the unwavering love of the messenger. Tom needs to be invited into our homes with his husband and kids. Where a great steak and some good wine are waiting for him, prepared by people who love him enough to point him to the one who gave his life. God never asks us to change anyone. That's his business. We've been called to love and engage people in the way of Jesus. 
leaving the rest up to him. So let me ask you, what will this mean for you? The clear teaching of Scripture is that we are to be those who, who love men and women, who, who, who love this society, who, who love this community. What does that mean for you? You see, the trouble is, in church life, there can be so many meetings going on, we become so church-oriented. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got a church meeting here, I'm, I'm doing this. When are you getting engaged in your community? How are you doing good to your community? How are you blessing your community? How are your good deeds being seen? How are you earning those openings for gospel words that will speak of Jesus to people who are going to wonder what you're doing? We do not live in a Christian ghetto. We must not live in a Christian ghetto. Jonah was judged by a pagan for not caring for others. Secondly, God's image can still be seen in all people, believers and unbelievers alike. You see, the pagan sailors acted in a more honorable way than the prophet Jonah did. And although believers have been made new in Christ and should reflect his image in far more glorious ways than unbelievers, the reality is that God's image can sometimes be seen more clearly in the behavior of pagans than in the actions and attitudes of some Christians. So not only should we be those who are eager to do good, we should also be those who recognize God's image reflected in greater or lesser ways in unbelievers. If you want the technical theological term for it, we call that common grace. And by common, we, we mean that it's God's gifts, God's image that's been distributed to all humanity. So you see, we won't dismiss works of art or music because the artist wasn't a believer. It means we'll appreciate good governance. It means we'll commend genuine mercy and kindness. It means we'll be humble enough to learn many lessons from unbelievers. It means we'll respect the wisdom and insights that they may bring. You see, often unbelievers can be asking the questions that we should be grappling with. They'll be looking for community. They'll be expressing spiritual hunger. They'll be caring for creation. Brothers and sisters, these should not be dismissed. God's image is seen, can be seen, in the whole of humanity. Third point I want to make is this. Our identity is to be rooted first and foremost in Christ. Our identity is to be rooted first and foremost in Christ. You see, Jonah identified himself primarily by his nationality and culture and only secondly by the object of his belief and worship. Whereas what should be exciting and motivating and controlling us should be our passion for Jesus Christ and the fact that we stand as rescued and redeemed sinners in Him. 
I'm saved because of Jesus. I'm in him. That is the number one thing. Yet it seems that many Christians major on the minors. They emphasize behavior over belief. For them, what you do is far more important than who you are. And so a mark of orthodoxy is the political party you vote for, or whether you drink alcohol, or whether you raise your hands in worship, or dress smartly on a Sunday, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know the, the rules and the laws that uh, apply to you, and maybe you faced as someone who was younger growing up, and these were the things, this was the behavior that was expected of you, because the behavior was more important than the belief, the fa- than the fact that you were resting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. My friends, what is most important to you? What is it that shapes you and defines you and drives you on? For if it isn't Christ, but rather some cultural or religious convention, then we're failing into the same, we're falling into the same judgmental patterns that we're warned about in Jonah. Our identity is in Christ. First and foremost. And then the final thing, the fourth thing that I want to say by way of application is this. Jonah reminds us of the seriousness of sin. Jonah reminds us of the seriousness of sin. See, Jonah knew he was disobeying God. He knew he was deliberately trying to escape from God's call upon his life, and he knew the only way to deal with the storm that his sin had unleashed upon the sailors was for him to die. He, he could see no other way. He knew the enormity of his sin against an infinitely holy and just God. And so he called upon the sailors to throw him into the sea to calm the storm. Of course, actually, the greatest exhibition of God's holiness was when God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died in the place of sinners. When he suffered our guilt, when he suffered our death, when he suffered our hell. That was the price. That was the seriousness of our rebellion. I stand alongside, you see, the vilest of sinners. I have nothing to boast of. I have nothing to be proud about. I have nothing to make me think that I'm in any way more deserving of God's grace than the pagan that I can so often look down upon. I stand in the same position. I am a sinner who has infinitely sinned against an infinitely holy God. And so it may be that I'm not going to be a Christian who turns his back on this ungodly society and all the distressing things that happen in it. And my friends, there are distressing things and wicked things and perverse things and horrible things in this society. I am not lessening them in any way, shape, or form. But I do not turn my back on it. We do not go back to the ghetto. Rather, I'm going to engage with it. I'm going to work for that society's blessing. I'm going to listen to it. And my heart's desire will be to see men and women 
rescued by Jesus in the same way that he rescued an undeserving wretch like me. Brothers and sisters, for all that's been going on even over this weekend, we do not turn our backs. We do not go back to the ghetto. We live Christ with courage and boldness and beauty and engagement for the glory of his name. Let's pray.